Thanks, bro. How are we doing, Revolution? That's not bad for small numbers tonight, but let's try it again anyway, um, just to feed my ego. How are we doing, Revolution? Very good. Awesome. All right. Um, we're going to continue working through um, the Gospel of Mark, so if you want to go there, we're going to polish off um, chapter 1 tonight, and so we're going, you'll be going to page 600 like we were last week. If, um, if you've got a Bible, Mark 1, 40 through 45, if you're using the blue Bibles, um, heads up, if you don't have a Bible that you read and like, um, then please take this home with you. It's our gift to you. And so page 600 as we're going there. As Justin said, please pray. We've had, we've had a lot of people been been hit. As you can look around, we had a lot of people that have been hit with sickness. I got four Facebook messages today from people, couples who said we won't be there tonight because they're sick or their kids are sick or, or, or whatever. Uh, Jeremiah and Tiffany Pistol especially have just been really wrestling with stuff up and down. Yeah, I mean, they've really been through the ringer over the last couple of weeks. So just please keep everyone in prayer. On top of that, we have had a lot of, of people over the last few weeks walk away from the faith because something has happened and they've chosen to walk away and embrace really unhealthy lifestyles. And so keep them in prayer um, as well, if you would. And that being said, we will jump in to the Gospel of Mark and look at just these five verses and um, talk about what is going on there. By the way, the Reds did win today. And... uh, they are now tied for the best record in baseball with the Nationals, 96 wins. Um, and the Bengals were winning last time I looked, 17-7. So we've got 17-10 now. Okay, well, sometimes the bungles return. Um, all right, let's take a look at this. Uh, verse 40. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. And he said, if you are willing... You can heal me and make me clean, he said. Now, there were actually, we'll stop there for a second. It says leprosy. Now, we tend to think leprosy, we tend to think, um, by the way, leprosy is, you know, is, is, in some ways has been cured, but it, it's not just one disease. Leprosy, whenever the Bible talks about leprosy, they're talking about one of 72 different kind of skin diseases, right? They had no way to really understand or diagnose um, um, skin diseases in the ancient Near East, right? I mean, it's amazing how, how little medicine progressed from the first century up through the 19th century. It's amazing how uh, medicine has progressed just in the last 50 years. Two years ago, I read a book about the history of cancer research because I'm a rock and fun party kind of guy. And, and it, 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 I mean, in the 1950s and 60s, most doctors thought that cancer was caught by a virus, that you got a virus and eventually that caused cancer, right? I mean, we, we've come that far, and, and, you know, in a, in a relatively short amount of time. They had no idea how to treat infectious skin diseases. And so this could be one of 72 different kinds of things, and they were largely untreatable. And so because of that, there was a great fear of them, Right? They don't know if they're passed through the air. They don't know if it's passed simply through touch. They don't know. And so because of that, Leviticus 13 laid out the basis for how Jews were supposed to deal with people with leprosy. I'm going to read that to you. Um, my small group's going to talk about this tonight. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 reads, Those who suffer from a serious skin disease must, get this, tear their clothing 
and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouths, like we tell people to do, right, when we think they have the flu, cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. This is everywhere they go. And as long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremoniously unclean, and they must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Now you think about what it meant to be a person like this, to have to live this way, right? Somebody who is wholly and utterly cut off from the community must absolutely debase and humiliate themselves wherever they go. As one scholar noted, this is not just how to deal with infectious disease. This is a sentence, right? This was absolutely horrendous. And in fact, if we're reading Luke and the early rabbis right, lepers were supposed to maintain 50 paces, at least 50 paces from any other human being at all times. That's how they were treated. Verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him, right? He said, I, I am willing. He said, be healed. Now, you know, what has happened? The leper has come and he's asked to be healed. Now, the, the scan, and, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. He says, I am willing to be healed. Now, the scandalous part of this verse is not the healing. We've already seen in Mark that Jesus has the power to heal people. The scandalous part is how Jesus heals him. What does he do? What does it say? It says he reaches out and touches him. Did Jesus have to reach out and touch him? No. There's absolutely nothing in there. there was no, there's not some rule book in heaven where it says, okay, now look, if you come across a leper, the way this works is you touch him and you, and you say the little incantation. It's not magic, right? Jesus is not bound that way. He is God. He could have just looked at the guy and said, hey, hey, hey give me the willies, stay away but you're healed, okay? He could have done that. He doesn't do that. He walks up to him, and and he touches him. And he says, I am willing. Be healed. And that is the most scandalous part of this verse. And for some reason, no one is willing to call him on it, right? Because what should have happened to him once he touched the leper, according to what I just read to you? He should have been declared unclean himself, right? And he should have been put outside the camp and he should have had to have stayed there until he was checked by a priest. And and until that happened, he would have to walk around, tear his clothes, muss up his hair, cover his mouth, scream unclean, and stay 50 paces away from everyone else. That does not happen. No one calls Jesus on it. But he touches him. Why? Why? We'll unpack that a little bit later, the reason that I believe that he touches it. It also says he was moved with compassion. Now, in the Greek, actually, you can render that two ways. You can render that, moved with compassion. You can also um, interpret that, properly interpret that, he was angry. Now, why would Jesus be angry? Do you think he's angry that this leper has come and has disrupted his day? Do you think he's angry that this leper has had the audacity to come up to him and get so close to him and speak to him? Do you think that he's angry because you know, he's got to heal this leper? I mean, everyone's watching. What, I mean, what, I don't think that's why he's angry. He's angry because he's angry at, at the fact that this exists in his creation. 
that this kind of disease and that this kind of alienation and that this kind of thing exists where He is Lord. I mean, what you need to remember, and this is very, very important, if you read the Bible carefully, we do not leave this earth. We live in this earth, right? One day God will make this earth perfect, new heavens and new earth. We will live here and Jesus will rule over it. Jesus will be king. This place belongs to Him. Every square inch of the earth belongs to Jesus. We're all just renting, right? It's His. And He's angry that sin is in His domain. So he's moved with compassion. He does this in verse 42. Instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. 44. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Now, the way this works is in all likelihood, he has to go to the temple. And to the temple, he has to go and he has to bring eyewitnesses that say that once he was a leper. And they look at his perfect skin, they pronounce him clean, he offers the sacrifices to God, and once he is pronounced clean, he can then re-enter society. No more saying unclean, unclean. No more torn clothes. No more 50 paces away. He can be a part of the community again. So Jesus has not just healed his leprosy, he has healed him in every way. He has given him a life again. But it's a 90-mile trip to Jerusalem from where he's at. A 90-mile walk. Verse 45, look what he did. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Do you think Jesus really thought that in a 90-mile walk, this guy who's been healed of leprosy, he's just going to be like, eh, you know, yesterday was just another Wednesday, right? He's going to talk to everybody he can. He's going to grab everyone he can. He's going to tell them, look at this, look at this. See this? See this? This was going to fall off yesterday. Now look, right? <laughs> this is what he's going to do. And, and, and Jesus isn't naive. Jesus does not want to, to use his miracles. He does not want people to say, okay, you've been healed. Now go tell everyone how great I am. He says, look, just go and be healed and be clean and, and rejoin your family and rejoin your community. But he knows there's no way he's going to keep quiet. He can't. How can you keep quiet after a miracle like that? How can you do that? Right? When I became a Christian in, in, in 1997 and they told me I had cancer and then the surgeon said, you're good, you, you should be good, I told everyone I could get a hold of, right? Even if they were just being nice, how you doing? And they just pass, hey, Matt, how you doing? I grab them, like, let me tell you. <laughs> Last week I thought I was going to be dead, right? Now here I am. You can't help that. When you take somebody and you do that for them, when you truly heal someone, that's what happens. That's just what happens. Now, what are we to do with this as a church today? See, I have this bias. My bias is that if you look at like Luke Acts, right, that essentially the pattern is this. 
what Jesus did, the disciples did, the early church did, right? Jesus goes, he proclaims the kingdom, he loves, he heals, and the, the disciples do the same thing. I mean, to be a disciple is to basically do what your master does, to copy him. And so they go and they do, and they teach the church to do the same thing. That is what the church does. How are we to do this? How are we doing on this, by the way? Are churches places of healing? Do you know that there are recovery groups you can go to for people who have been abused by churches? That's disgusting. How can churches follow in Jesus' footsteps? I haven't got power to physically heal people, but how can I restore people? How can I at least give people a life back? How can I at least get them to where they were on the outside, they've been brought back in by their families and community? How, how, how can we do that? Are we doing that? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. How are we doing? Um, I was listening to a former professor talk, um, and one of my former professors that I love to listen talk, basically... All he does is he reads a lot of books like me and then he just repeats what's in the books. He's smart enough to know he's not that smart, right? Um, I'm, I'm there, right? I, I read a lot. The reason I read 100, 150 books a year is not because I'm just trying to be snooty. It's because I know I'm not that smart and that's what I got to do to keep doing what I got to do, right? And, 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 and so he was reading a book. I believe if I heard the title right, the book's title was Proofiness. It's a book on math. You're a real raging geek if you're going after a book on math called Proofiness, right? And and, and basically, what this mathematician argues is that a good mathematician, like a good accountant, can make numbers do almost anything, right? And and, and so, he he tells this story. Um, Exactly. And he says that this, this, we're in election season. Everybody's saying this election is going to be very, very, very close. You know, if you remember 2000, the election in 2000, there was Bush and there was Gore, and it all came down to Florida. And everybody was trying to see what was going to go on in Florida. And this mathematician, by his, I've seen different studies on this, but by his study, if you counted all the ballots in Florida 10 different times, you came up with 10 different results. And half the time it favored George Bush, and half the time it favored Al Gore. Now, what do you do when that happens? Now, he argues that, to be fair, it should have been declared a tie. And Florida has a way of breaking ties in elections. Do you know how they do it? They flip a coin. Now, tell me that wouldn't be the most awesome reality TV ever. The presidency comes down to George Bush and Al Gore flipping a coin on live TV. Would that not be awesome, right? Think of the ratings, man. They should have done that. The Supreme Court should have been smart. And the point of this is, the point of this whole story is, the point of this, what this mathematician is arguing is, we have no real way to measure national elections when they get very close. Now, measurement's important. Right? 
how you measure success is important. Now, in churches, typically, we measure success in two ways. Anyone want to guess what they are? Attendance and how much money they give. That's right. Churches typically measure, to put it crudely, bucks and butts, right? If you've got a lot of people and a lot of money, you're a successful church. You can be teaching rank heresy in there. But you can be a successful church. I think measurement should be a little different. I think measurement should be how many people we take and actually heal who then send out and go out and say, you've got to hear what happened to me. Right? I think that's what Jesus did. I think that's what the disciples do. I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I don't think we're doing a very good job at it. Francis Schaeffer was a Christian thinker who argued that the church, the, the term he used was the church is the final apologetic. And what he means by that is people outside the church will often judge the truth of Christianity by the local church. So how they love, if they love one another and they actually change people, they'll say, there may be something to this. And if they don't love people and they don't change people, then they're just like, that's just a bunch of hypocritical junk. Fair enough. How are we doing? How are we doing? I don't think we're doing that hot. But I do think it is possible to build such a community. And I think you have to do two things to do that. The first is this. You have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. So you can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way no one will understand it. You lose a lot of Bible language, right? Justification, sanctification, all that kind of stuff. And people are sitting there going, amen. They have no idea what you're talking about. And I know because I've asked them. Every church that I have ever worked at, and I've worked at churches in Texas, um, New York, West Virginia, and Ohio. And every single church, what I do is, the first thing I do is I take the leaders of the church and I go, tell me what justification means. And people who have been in the church for 40 years, been reading the Bible, go, um, um, Jesus something? Something about Jesus. Yes, very good. That's about as close as they get. Because we have not preached the gospel clearly what Jesus has done and why. The second thing we have to do, though, is this. And I'll come back to the gospel in this text in a minute. The second thing we have to do is we have to avoid the most poisonous, dangerous part of our culture today. And the most poisonous, dangerous part of our culture today is how we view relationships. Here's what I mean. I've used this illustration before. I can't find a better one. So, you know, if you want to help me out, Give me a better one, and I'll use it. Till then, I'm going to keep using this one. Now, let's say, and by the way, this is what happens whenever you give me an illustration. The first time I use it, I will give you credit by name. The second time, I will say, someone told me this. The third time, it's mine. Now, so, I have become seriously addicted to vitamin water, especially lemonade-flavored vitamin water. I love this stuff. I absolutely love this stuff. The only problem is it's like a buck thirty, buck fifty a bottle, and I suck it down in like five seconds, right? And I want like ten of them a day, right? My my, my IRA is now 
non-existent. It has now gone into vitamin water, right? I mean, it's just I love vitamin water. And, and so what I'll do is when I'm out driving around, I, I get up in the morning, I drive to the office, and I will stop. So if I haven't got any vitamin water, I will stop at a convenience store, and I will go get a vitamin water, right? Okay, so let's say that every morning I get up to go get my vitamin water, right? And I'm driving to the office, and I stop at Mealtown Mini Mart, where David Dowdy's working in the morning, and I walk in there to buy my vitamin water from David every morning. And as will happen is if you do something every single day, right, week after week, month after month, you will get to know the people who are selling you the vitamin water, right? You will just get to know their names. Eventually, it will go beyond getting to know their names. They'll start to talk to you about their family. They'll start to talk to you about your life. You eventually develop a relationship with the person manning the, you know, the cashier, the money, and you will develop a friendship with these people. You have a relationship. You know about their struggles. You know about their accomplishments. You know when they're happy. You know when they're sad. You get to the point where you can just read them. You have a relationship with them. But then... Down the road a bit further, let's say, there's another convenience store. And they also sell vitamin water. But instead of selling it at a buck and a quarter like they do at Mule Town Mini Mart, they sell it for a buck. And it's along my way. Bye-bye relationship with David Dowdy. Right? I'm saving a quarter a day. And I drink a lot of vitamin water. It adds up. And so... I may never see David Dowdy again. Even though we've developed this relationship and this friendship because I need vitamin water cheap. Right? And seriously, if you can find me crates of this, I will buy it. Okay? Um, this is the way we do consumerism. This is how the market works. If you offer a better product at a lower price, you will go there. You will go and do this. Right? It's the whole reason Walmart exists. No one would put up with going to Walmart if it didn't exist, right? If you weren't looking for the same product at a cheaper price, no one would ever, ever go to a Walmart. The only time I doubt the existence of God is in a Walmart. Because goodness sakes, you ever have that person honk at you from the rascal scooter? <laughs> is that not humiliating? And do you not have a sinful desire to be like, mm, yeah? <laughs> this is how the marketplace works, and that's fine. It works well that way. The problem is we also treat people that way. We treat people that way who aren't selling us anything. We treat people that way. We enter into relationships as friends. We, enter, we treat people that way if we marry them. We treat boyfriends, girlfriends that way. We treat everyone that way. If you can give me what I want, I will be with you until I can find it at a better price somewhere else. Right? So, I, have, I had, had a counseling situation two years ago where a woman divorced her husband of more than like 10 years. They had a little kid together. And I'm like, what are you doing, right? I, 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 we, we go back and forth. We have, we have these, it's this weird modern, you know, you have counseling sessions on Facebook, which is bizarre. But we're having this back and forth. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, we're just not in love anymore. And I'm like, well, what changed? Is he, is, he, is he beating you? No. Is he angry with you all the time? Is he losing his temper? No. 
Did he lose his job? Has he just decided to, you know, heck with you all, heck with my responsibility? No. I'm confused. What's going on here? Well, we don't have a romantic relationship anymore. And I'm like, well, why don't you have a romantic relationship anymore? And finally it comes out, well, he's gained a lot of weight. In other words, what she was saying was, I love him as long as he's physically attractive to me. And then when he's not, I'm going to find someone else. Now, was she ever really in love with him? No. She was in love with what he could do for her at that time. Yes? Do we not treat people this way? See, a lot of you are nodding going, yeah, that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, that ex husband You don't do it? Oh, come on. You get vitamin water for a quarter cheaper, you're going down the block, right? If you're not really in love with that person, you're going down the block. See, to be a church that truly heals people, that brings people in and, 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 and is able to, to get the gospel to them and able to orient them to the gospel to the point where they finally understand that they are accepted by God regardless of what they have done in the past. They have accepted by God regardless of what they can do for God in the future. They are simply accepted and loved by God that Jesus died for them in their place. And by doing that, He took all the punishment from their sins away. He washed them clean. All the shame and guilt is gone. So that in the eyes of God, you are not... The person who did this, the person who did that. You are not the person who was assaulted. You are not the addict. You are not that. You are clean. You are beloved. You are an adopted child of God. And no one in a church should treat you any differently. If that's what you are, that's how you should be treated. As a fellow child of God. You see... It's not about how righteous you are. It's about how much you love God. At the end of the day, when it comes to righteousness, folks, there is Jesus and there is everybody else. There's no third tier. And when churches finally get that. I mean, I have been in churches where the goal was to evangelize people who gave a lot of money. I have been in churches where the policy, policy, I haven't worked at this church, but I've been in this church. The policy, according to the elders that I spoke with, was the level of money you give to the church dictates your access to what pastor you get. So if you don't give a lot of money and it's time for you to get married, you might get the intern doing your wedding. But if you give a million dollars, the senior pastor will be there. What message is that sin? Right? It's not how it works. See, I have this... I think the Bible teaches that measurement comes by, by change. By how many people are truly, truly changed. If you've got five people and four of those five are eternally changed, that's better than having 5,000 where no one has changed. I believe it's that important. And that means that we have to do what Jesus did.
Which means that when we reach out to people, we don't do so superficially. We actually enter into their pain. We actually embrace them. We actually risk getting dirty ourselves. There is no way to heal someone without taking on part of their pain. It can't be done. In many ways, you have to take their pain upon them to release it so they can be free from it. You have to. There's just no other way to do it. Did you notice the last line there in Mark that we looked at in 45? Did you notice what happens to Jesus? Verse 45. Look what it says. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places. Like who? Like a leper. The man he has healed is back home. He's back with his family. He's back in the community. He's back worshiping in the synagogue. He's back in the marketplace. And Jesus is out in the desert where they say unclean, unclean, unclean. You know why Mark notes that? Because that's how Jesus makes you clean. It's Jesus takes your sin and your shame upon himself to free you from it. And I don't know of any way to help people escape that, but to do that yourself. If you're going to help somebody overcome the guilt and shame of, of some sin that has been forced upon them, like they've been, they've been sexually assaulted, or, the, or, or some sin that they have committed by, by, by doing something stupid, you're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to cry with them. You're going to have to be with them. You're going to have to be right there in the midst of all that confusion. You're going to have to be in the midst of all that pain. You're going to have to be right there and take it upon yourself in order to take it off them. There's no other way to do it. And that's the only way the church can work. The only way the church can work. How are we doing You know, over the last two weeks, how in, I told you just last week, it just keeps getting worse. It just seems one person after another tells me that they're leaving the faith for this reason or that reason. I have sat with, I don't know how many people. I told my wife the other day, I have not had a meeting all day where somebody didn't cry. Everybody's crying everywhere I go. Sit down, people are heartbroken. They're saying, I just can't do this anymore. This is going on. This is going on. And, it, and do you know what happens when, when, you're with people and you go and you share that, you know what ends up happening? Two o'clock in the morning, you're crying. That's just the way it works. Why would anyone do that? Because one day when you stand before Jesus, that's all that's going to matter. That's why. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that
you did not abandon us to our sin and our shame and our guilt, but you actually entered into it. You've actually, for those who say, we, we, we want you, we want to follow you, we love you, you have actually taken everything we have done upon yourself. You have taken every shame, guilt, every piece of disgrace, every, every bad name, every bad label. If people have ever looked down upon us, you have taken that upon yourself so that we could be free, we could be cleansed, we could be set free to become people who rejoin a community, this community, a community of healing that then reaches out to heal others and also, like you, enters into that pain and enters into that shame and takes it upon themselves. And as heartbreaking as that can be, it's a life worth living. I pray that everyone here does it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.